0: you will watch it over and over and over and over and over. I am not that guy. I do not like to watch things over and over and over again. So I will confess to you that while I love First John, it's got me doing that thing like, didn't I already read this? And I think that's kind of the point not to despise it, but to realize that one of the best rules as a teacher is if you want people to understand the truth, you say it as many ways as you can and as many times as you can so that eventually they look at the teacher and go, you already said that. And you go, good, you were listening. And then they remember it for whatever reason. And and repetition is huge. And John keeps going over these ideas of how we know we love God, and how we know that God loves us, and how we know that the Spirit of God lives within us. And this morning is going to be more of the same, and yet, except he's going to say it in different ways. And so, in 1 John, he writes so that we may know that we've been loved by the Father. And if you know anything about the Apostle John... One thing that he recognized about himself is that he was the disciple whom Jesus had loved. And we have gone over that over and over again. But this morning, as we recognize that John realizes that he was loved, he addresses you and I as the beloved. And if you've read the Old Testament, you've read the book of Solomon, the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon, he talks about his beloved And the idea is this person who has captured him, and he is enraptured with, and he calls her his beloved, and, and he calls her that because the word means those who have been loved. And in this case, John is saying beloved to you and I. He says those who have been divinely loved by God. Do you recognize this morning that for those who are in Christ, you have been divinely loved by the God of creation, the only God that actually exists, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the one who breathes rhema, the breath of life, into, into dirt and makes us alive. He loves you. And so uh, this morning we begin in 1 John chapter 4, verse 7, where John writes, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God, for God is love. In this, the love of God was manifested toward us, that God sent his only begotten Son into the world that he might live, that we might live through him. In this this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved, we also ought to love one another. I'm going to reread that verse. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now that takes us back to this last beginning of the chapter And really, chapter three, he continues to talk about if you claim to love God and yet you don't love your brother, then you're a liar. And he's going to reiterate that point. But loving God is not where it stops. But he points out that really, beloved, those who have been divinely loved by God, this is our motivation for everything. And I've already referenced the fact that the apostle Paul, who I think many of us would look at and say, "What the greatest missionary ever that we have an account of covered oceans, covered seas, covered islands, covered continents. He traveled everywhere. We have three or four missionary journeys that are mapped in most of the back of our Bibles. And yet what Paul said was what motivated him. He was compelled by the love that he had personally experienced by Jesus Christ. He didn't say, you know, it's the love of the apostles that Jesus Christ instilled and taught that compels me. He said, it's the love of Christ that compels me personally. And so he writes and he says, beloved, go love. Verse seven, beloved, let us love one another for love is of or from God. And everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. And so I love this because he's essentially saying, loved, go love. And I heard that from David Guzik this week. He said he's calling us loved, and then he's saying, go love. People that haven't been loved cannot go love. They have nothing to motivate them. They have no example to follow. But he says, beloved of God, those who are the object of God's affection. Take that affection and give it to others. And so he says, "Everyone who loves can only love because they've been born of God and they know God. And I love this because this being born of God is explained in John chapter three, verse one, where we have Nicodemus. many call him Nick at night because he came to Jesus, not during the day when everybody was standing around, but he was a little bit more cautious. He knew that it was going to cost him if he went and talked to Jesus and asked him to teach him something, because Nicodemus was a teacher. He was supposed to know God, and yet he was confused and a little bit. uh, He had his eyes opened by Jesus, and he says, I need to go ask him some questions. I need some one-on-one tutoring. So he gets there in John 3, And it says there that there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher that has come from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. So even Nicodemus said God's in this guy based on his works. His life proves that he's connected to the God of life. And so, verse 3 says, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless someone is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he's old? How can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You know, a lot of us would look at that question and go, Well, that's ridiculous. But he's actually asking a good question. Do you mean physical birth? That's what he's saying. Do you notice the childlikeness in Nicodemus' question? He's asking what my child would ask me. You need to be born again. Well, that's impossible. I'm too, I'm too big to fit in mom again. That's, you know, that's what he's saying. And so it has to mean more than that. And so Jesus answered and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. He says, do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. So this birth has nothing to do with being born again physically. It has everything to be to do with being born again spiritually. We are born dead in our sins and trespasses. We are zombies, if you will. If you're into that sort of thing, it's a perfect picture. We're walking around, but we are the walking dead. Trad- trademark not included. We're not sponsored. And so here we have in First John 4, he says, everyone who is born of God and knows God loves one another. And so what is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't, I can't help it. <laughs> Just pops in my brain. I got to let it go pray for me, because whatever props in my brain, I'm going to say, and I need to be full of Jesus. But he says that the love of God is manifested in this. What does the word manifested mean? I've continually, as we've been reading through this and manifested, been saying it's revealed. And that's one word for it, but manifested means shown forth. It's exposed. And then it's put on a billboard. And it's put on a banner for all to see. It's a pop-up ad on your computer. It's constantly being exposed to you so that you have the opportunity to respond to it. The love of God is manifested. But what is this love? Is this, there's like five different words for love in the Greek. Maybe four, and then they had to make up one. But the idea is, in, in English, how many words do we have for love? One. One. So I can say, I love cheeseburgers, and then I can say, I love Iron Mule pizza, and then I can say, I love my wife, and then I can say, I love deer hunting. Hopefully, that word love doesn't mean the same in every context, because if so, I've got some problems at home. Like, my wife is like a cheeseburger to me? That makes no sense. You know, I'll do anything for you, and I will also do anything for a cheeseburger, (laughs) That's not the same idea, right? And so we have words like um, phileo, which is brotherly love. We have words like eros, which is erotic love. We have words like storge, which is a different kind of love. And then Jesus comes along and he loves the whole... God so loved, God the Father, so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever will believe in him will not perish, but instead will have everlasting life. That's a new kind of love. They didn't even have a Greek word for that, for sacrificial love. They had to come up with the word agape, agape, agapeo. And so that word means to sacrifice, to divinely love, to give of oneself in order that another person would be lifted up. And we were just reading last night to the kids about how um, the the disciples were arguing amongst themselves, and they were traveling, and and they said Jesus gets to where they're going, and he goes, "Hey, what were you guys talking about back there?" And they were arguing. Imagine that road trip. The kids are arguing, and the disciples are arguing about who's the greatest. They wouldn't even answer him because they were a little embarrassed that he heard. And what were they arguing about? Who's the greatest? Who's the greatest? You ever notice the one person that wasn't involved in the argument was actually the greatest? If you are really the greatest, you don't have to argue with other people to prove it. And so Jesus says, what were you guys talking about? And he goes, whoever wants to be the greatest must become the servant of all. And in Mark chapter 10, verse 45, it actually says that. Jesus says, I did not come to be served, but to serve and to sacrifice for everyone else. And so, Jesus is explaining that he came to love us, to surrender his right, to be the king on the throne. He took on servitude. And so, God sent his only begotten son to manifest his love to the world, and he manifested this love through death. Now, remember back to your dating days. Remember back to your first love days. I will do anything for this person. I'll even die for them. And then later on, it's like, hey, can you throw the wash into the dryer? I don't know. I'm watching my show. I'm watching the Packers, you know, and it's like you would do anything, but now you won't get off the couch. What kind of love is that? It's not Jesus's love, right? Jesus will do anything to prove his love, and his love is revealed. It's manifested through sacrifice. Now, The first time that we see love in the Bible, this love that sacrifices is found in Genesis chapter 22. So turn there with me. Many of you will be familiar with this story. Genesis chapter 22. Historically, Abraham was exposed to the love of God. God revealed himself to him. He set him apart to be a new nation. And yet, um, Abraham had no children, and so he couldn't have any descendants. And therefore, the promises of God to him to make him a great nation would be very difficult without children. And then, through the course of time, and through Abraham making some pretty big mistakes, God gives him a son through his wife, Sarah. And Sarah has this child, and they name him Isaac. And Isaac is born, and he grows up before the Lord. And Abraham's teaching about his relationship with God, about sacrifice, And so as the story goes in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, God comes to Abraham, and he says to him, Abraham, in verse 1, and Abraham responds and says, here I am. I'm yours, God. Speak to me. So verse 2, he says, take now your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains which I shall show you. And so I love this because this wording is very intentional by the Holy Spirit. He says, Take your son, comma, your only son, comma, the son you love, and sacrifice him. And he doesn't say, make him a set apart person for God. He says, Sacrifice him as a burnt offering. That means he's going to die. Give me your son. Sacrifice this person that you love, this person that you are staking your future on, this person that is in your image. Give him to me. And what he's saying is, Who do you love, Abraham? Who do you love? Do you love me or do you love your son? Who do you love most? Who is your priority? And so Abraham responds, and it says in verse 3, He rose early in the morning and saddled his donkey and took two of his young men with him and Isaac his son, and he split the wood for the offering, arose and went to the place of which God had told him. And he walked for three days to get there. And he didn't take anything to sacrifice except for his son. He didn't hedge his bet. He didn't say, okay, but God's probably going to change his mind. I'll take a lamb. He took his son and nothing else to offer. And on the third day, Abraham lifted his eyes. He saw the place afar off, and he said to his young men, stay at the bottom with the donkey, and the lad and I will go yonder. I love that. We're going to go yonder and worship, and we will come back to you. So Abraham took the word of the burnt offering. He laid it on Isaac, his son. Do you see the parallels? This is the gospel. God the Father laid the cross on his son. He bore it all the way to Calvary, and he took the fire in his hand, and a knife. And the two of them went together. But Isaac spoke to Abraham, his father, and said, my father. And he said, here I am, my son. Then he said, look, you brought the fire. You brought the wood. uh, Where's the lamb? I love this because this is not the first time that Abraham took his son to church. This lifestyle of making sacrifice before the Lord was such a pattern that when, when he arose and said, let's go sacrifice, his son was like, okay, let's go. I'd love to worship the Lord. And then he gets there and realizes, where's the offering? Where's the lamb? And his dad responds to him and says, my son, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering. Then there was no more discussion. There was no dragging of the heels. There was submission. And they went up the mountain. And And then they came to the place of which God had told them. And Abraham built an altar there and placed the wood in order. He bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. By this point, by the way, he is not a toddler. He's a man. And yet the man, Isaac, did not fight his father. He trusted his father. Look at Jesus. He didn't fight his father all the way to the cross. He went willingly. He set his face to be sacrificed. He knew what must be done. And when he got there, he didn't cry out and go, this is too much. As a matter of fact, we don't hear him cry out until he cried out and said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And then he cries out, why father, have you forsaken me? In the the worst throes of the sacrifice, he cries out, but then he gives up his spirit to the Lord. And so all that said, Abraham stretched out his hand, verse 10, and he took the knife because they would kill the offering first. They would slit its throat and then they would burn it as a whole burnt offering. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. So he said, here I am. He was still sensitive to the Lord's leading. He wasn't so set on it that he wasn't still open to God speaking. And at that point he said, do not lay your hand on the lad. Verse 12, do not do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. By faith, Abraham loved God more than Isaac. And I love this because Abraham then obtains a promise by faith. Verse 13 Abraham lifted his eyes, he looked, and there behind him was a ram. The thing that he said wasn't just something he said, he saw the fulfillment of it. He said, I trust you, God. I know that God's going to provide for Himself a sacrifice. And when He did, there it was. Abraham went, He took the ram, He offered it up for a burnt offering instead of His son. And Abraham called the name of the place, The Lord will provide. And as it is said to this day, In the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham, a second time out of heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, says the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. Multiplying, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven and as the sand which is on the seashore. And your descendants shall possess the gates of your enemies. In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice obedience. So Abraham returned to his young men. They rose and they went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt at Beersheba. So why did I share that story with you? Sacrificial love is something that naturally comes out of the life of someone who has been sacrificed for. Beloved of God, God's not asking you to do anything that he hasn't himself first done. So this is love. Verse 10, in this is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the payment that turns away wrath for our sins. Beloved, recognize that God's not interested in your love for him outside of his love already shown for you. What should compel you to love your brethren is not that they're worthy of your love, not that they deserve it, not that they earned it, but that you have been loved by God. And so go and take that love that you've experienced from him and show it to others. Live it out. Live it out tangibly. Sacrifice to do it. The love that you've been shown cost the life of Jesus, and so as a result of that, as a response to that, we go love not because the world is lovely, not because the people around us deserve it, but because we have been loved. That's what should compel us. He says in verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, and if you're a person that writes in your Bible, underline that word so. Beloved, If God loved us like this, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. So, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And I love this because here's the deal. Turn with me to John 13. We know that the Father loved us because he sent his Son. But that didn't um, keep Jesus from having to show that same kind of love. In John chapter 13, we have a very well-known story where Jesus, he takes the form of a slave, a bond slave. He sets himself down at the feet of his disciples. And rather than saying, hey, uh, Peter, you need to go wash the disciples' feet. He instead says, I'm going to wash your feet. And in that culture, that was being a doormat because they didn't have doormats. They had servants, they had slaves that would wash your feet. And I love this because after he gets done, after they sit down, after he has washed their feet, he doesn't turn around and say, now you wash my feet. You ever notice that? I didn't. Jesus didn't say, as I have loved you, now you should love me that's intriguing to me because that's what we do that person should love me more don't they know how much i've loved them and yet the son of god that we claim to follow when he got done washing his disciples poopy feet he washed their sandal feet after walking in an agrarian society where there was dung everywhere he scrubbed their feet and when he got done he said now mine no What he said was, now go wash each other's feet. Now go love one another. As I have done to you, go and do likewise. Because he doesn't need us to love him. Do you know God doesn't need us to love him? Are you a Christian? Well, yeah, of course I love God. He doesn't need that. If you're a Christian, go love like God. It's harder, it preaches easier than it lives. I get that but go wash people's poopy feet and don't expect anything in return. That's the love of God. If God so loved us, we also ought to so love the world that he loves. Who's the object of God's love? The world. He says, I love the world, now you go love the world. He doesn't say go love what the world does. He doesn't say go condone what they do, go do what they do. If you're doing that, stop. He says, go and love them like I have loved you. So verse 12 goes on to say, No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love has been perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in Him and He in us because He has given us of His Spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him and he in God. And we have known and believed that the love that God has for us, God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. It sounds like a riddle almost. But the first part of verse 12 seems to be kind of unrelated to what he said before. He just got done saying, Beloved, if God so loved the world, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then he says, No one has seen God at any time. Does it seem like he kind of went off on a rabbit trail? What he's saying is, No one has ever seen God. And if you read the Old Testament all the way through Revelation, the Old Testament Genesis, and then you read the New Testament all the way through Revelation, what you see is that God never reveals himself as an image. The only way that we do know Hebrews 1 says that he was revealed the direct representation of God the Father is Jesus the Son. And then he sent his Spirit to indwell us, to enlighten the eyes of our heart, Ephesians teaches, so that we can see God. And yet no one's ever seen God the Father. He's represented by Jesus, but no one's ever seen God the Father. So in verse 12, he says, No one has seen God at any time, but if we love one another, God lives in us, and his love has been perfected in us. So the question is, how can we prove that he's in us? What's the evidence that the God of creation lives within you and I? And the answer is, the simple answer is, the love of God, expressed through our lives. But as I was reading in John 3 earlier, I stopped short of an interesting verse. John 3, verse 7, he says, Do not marvel. I said to you, you must be born again. And then in verse 8, he says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from, and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. So if the Holy Spirit resides within you, the very essence of God, the result of it is that you will be guided by the Spirit, and your lifestyle, your character, the way that you care about people will change. He says no one sees the wind, but we see the result of the wind, right? We have a major windstorm. All of a sudden, our yards are full of branches, Some of our houses get hit by trees. We see the result of the wind, and yet while the windstorm's going on, you can't really see the wind. And yet what he's saying in John 3 verse 8 is what he's also saying in 1 John 4, which is if the Spirit of God lives in you, people will be able to see the result of that. People will be able to see the effect of that. There will be evidence in your life that the presence of God is within you. If we love one another, then it's proof that God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. The idea of perfected is that it's been made complete. It's been brought to maturity. The presence of God in you should continue to mature your life and make your character match the character of who? Jesus. And so he's given us his spirit, verse 13 says, and his spirit is His divine nature. The Holy Spirit always reveals Jesus Christ. And so one of the things that makes Calvary Chapel different and why we call ourselves different than some of the denominations is because this. Excuse me. The Holy Spirit is a very important part in the life of the believer. But it's not the main part. See, there are two different sides of the coin. There are denominations that talk about the Holy Spirit, but don't believe in his powers and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And there are also denominations that major on the Holy Spirit. And so they are always emphasizing the gifts of the Spirit and some of the more spiritual kind of stuff that can, if you've ever been to one of these churches, you know, can kind of seem crazy like it's a Holy Spirit circus, but it's not biblical for the Holy Spirit to be the main emphasis and to talk about them all the time, because anytime you see the Holy Spirit in the Bible, the Holy Spirit reveals who? Jesus Christ. So where the Spirit is, there's a testimony of Jesus. There's a confession of the work of Jesus. There's an effect. We start to look like Jesus, not aliens. And so the reality is that the presence of the Holy Spirit will change your life from the inside out, and it won't just be during the service, during the Spirit-filled time of worship. It will change your lifestyle when you go back to normal life. And so just real quick, I want to spend a little bit of time talking about this because the Holy Spirit was promised to believers by Jesus Christ when He was here with us in John chapter 14. He promised us His presence. So in John chapter 14, in verse 15, Jesus said this, If you love me, keep my commandments. He says, And I will pray the Father, and He will give you another helper. And in your translation, however it is, it should be capitalized that helper is the goel, the person that comes alongside. And the goel, the, the helper, the, the person that comes alongside that he may abide with you forever. So he gives a commandment. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And we say, well, that should be easy. But if you've ever tried to keep the commandments, it is not easy. It's impossible actually. But then he promises As I've asked you to keep my commandments, I'm going to pray the Father sends you the ability, the person of the Holy Spirit, to empower you to keep my commandments. I'm going to send you the Helper, and He will abide with you forever. Verse 17, the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him, but you know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you orphans. I will come to you a little while longer and the world will see me no more. And you will see me because I live. You will live also. He's telling them, I'm getting ready to be killed. I will be sent to the Father. I will ascend. I will leave your physical presence. But he says, you will know me because I will live and you will live also. And at that day, you will know that I am in my Father and you and me and I and you He who has my commandments and keeps them, it is he who loves me, and he who loves me will be loved by my Father, you'll be beloved, and I will love him, and I will show forth myself to him. Judas, Judas not Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest or show forth yourself to us and not to the world? And Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, he will keep my word and my Father will love him. He will come to him and make our home with him. The Spirit residing within us is the promise. He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the word which you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. And so turn forward to John 16, verse 5, where Jesus speaks again about the work of the Spirit. So he's going to send the Spirit to live within us, He's going to empower us to live differently, to keep the commandments. And later, 1 John is going to say, who who loves me will keep my commandments and they won't be a burden to him. And the reason they won't be a burden is because the Spirit will empower us and give us a new desire to fulfill those commandments. Not any longer because we have to, but because we get to, because we've been set free from the law of commandments. But But in John 16, verse 5, Again, he says the same thing, but he elaborates. He says, But now I go away to him who has sent me, and none of you asks, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, then the helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send him to you. And when he has come, he will do these three things. This is what the Holy Spirit does. He will convict the world of sin. He will convict the world of righteousness. And he will convict the world of judgment. Of sin because they do not believe in me. Unless you know God, you don't know that there's a mark to hit. Sin means you've missed the mark. And God reveals to us that there is a mark to hit and that we will be accountable for righteousness and we will be accountable for judgment if we don't hit the mark. He says, Of sin, because the world does not know me or believe in me. Of righteousness, because I go to my Father and you see me no more. So the presence of the Spirit in us will make us righteous, will make us perfected, and then the world will see how we live, and they'll go, why are you so different? And then we point to the Father, and we say, because God's changed me. He's made me like his son Jesus. Jesus no longer being here present means that his presence is left, but he's left the Spirit within us to live like Jesus, which is convicting to the world because their works are darkness. And then he says, I still have many things to say to you. Verse 12, But you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the Spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth, for he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will tell you things to come. He will glorify who? The Holy Spirit will glorify himself? No, it says there, he will glorify me and Jesus is speaking. For he will take of what is mine and he will declare it to you. All things that the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he will take of mine and he will declare it to you. And so the Spirit present in our life declares Jesus and lives like Jesus and reveals Jesus to a lost world. So, evidence of the Holy Spirit within us is seen in this, the Spirit's presence. Verse 13 of 1 John 4, by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his Spirit who will do all the things we just read about in John. And we have seen and we testify that the Father has sent the Son as Savior of the world. So the Spirit-filled life will see God. Now, we just read in verse 12, no one has seen God at any time. And the idea is we haven't seen him with our physical eyes. And yet through the Spirit, we can see the working of the Spirit. And it says there in verse 14, we have seen and we testify the works that the Father has done. So the Spirit-filled believer will be able to see with spiritual eyes, the work of the spirit that's going on. And they won't just keep it to themselves, but their lips will be loosed and they will testify to the world, this is what God is doing in my life. And if you think that that's difficult, let me encourage you, pray for opportunities, you don't have, not to lead a Bible study, unless you feel like that's what God's called you to, but pray for opportunities just to tell other people what God is doing in your life. It doesn't have to be something super spiritual. I was testifying this week that my back is bad and I hurt it and God is doing something to provide healing. Now, I've prayed for supernatural healing, by the way, but if God wants to do something else, he can. And we don't have insurance right now, and I'm not telling you that, so you'll boo-hoo. I'm telling you that because God is bigger than insurance, and we're going to try to get insurance. But my, my point in telling this story is that it just so happens that God already provided a chiropractor when we went to Israel last year. There was one on the trip, and I just so happened to have his number and became friends with him, and I didn't even want to text the guy. But I prayed, Lord, if, if this is the guy that's going to help me, Then help me to humble myself and just ask. And he responded really quickly and said, I'll take care of you. But that was Jesus taking care of me. I don't have a super spiritual reason for it. God's promised not to leave me or forsake me. And this is how he's doing it. And if I just share that story and I can point to how Jesus is taking care of my physical need, then just perhaps somebody will hear that and go, I wonder if he'll take care of my spiritual need or my physical need. I wonder if he wants to be my father. They see God's doing work and they testify of it. Are you seeing God work in your life? No one can see God except those that God opens their eyes. Testify about it. Don't keep it to yourself. Verse 15. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, it's proof that God abides in him and he in God. Are you confessing to others that Jesus is the son of God? That's proof that he's in your life. Verse 16, we have known God and believe the love that God has for us. God is love and he who abides in love abides in God and God in him. So for those who are filled with the spirit, we have known the love of the father. We've experienced it personally, not because someone else told us about it. We've known it. We've been told about it, but it can't stop with just knowing it. It has to go to believing in it. And without faith, it's impossible to please God for he who believes in God must believe that he is and that he's the rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That's what Hebrews 11 says. So we have known the love of the Father. We've experienced the love of the Father and we believe Knowing and believing are two different things. But knowing, if it doesn't lead to believing, will be knowing the truth and going to hell anyway. Believing the truth, resting in it, putting your full weight upon it, trusting Jesus in your daily life, that's how he perfects his love within us and then our testimony is true. So, my question for you this morning is this God this love that we're talking about it's for you and it's for me. So the question I have for you is do you believe that God loves you with this agape love? Do you believe that? Do you know that and do you believe that? I'm here to tell you so you can know God loves you this way. God loves you like this example we saw in Abraham. He sent his son. And many people would say, well, God's having Jesus go do his dirty work. He's sending his son to go die for the world. For those of you that have children, you know that you would rather take pain than see your children go through pain. He so loved the world that he gave his son for you and I. He didn't just give himself. He gave what was precious to him, what is precious to him. He said it on multiple occasions, from heaven. He said, this is my son. This is my beloved son. This is my only son. Hear him. I've sent him. I approve of him. Do you believe that God sent his son for you? So the next question I have is a tricky one. What do you think it would take to make you stop believing that God loves you? What's on your list that makes you think, if I don't do this, or if I have done this, then God probably doesn't love me anymore? Do you doubt his love on the days where you don't do good is the question. What does it take to stop God from loving you? Do you have an answer for that? Here's what Paul said in Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. Here's the confession of Paul. Verse 37, he says, In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. He says in verse 31 of this same chapter, What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also Freely give us all things. Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, and furthermore also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? What about tribulation, distress, persecution? What about if you don't have enough food? Does that mean that God doesn't love you? What about nakedness or peril? What if someone kills you? Does that mean that God doesn't love you? And yet he says in verse 37, "In all these things we are more than conquerors through him who already loved us. He sacrificed for us. And then he says, I'm persuaded that neither death nor life, angels, principalities, powers, things present, things to come, height nor depth, nor any created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. So whatever it is you might list in your mind, this thing will cause God to stop loving me. It's, it's bull hockey. It's not true. Nothing can separate you because God loved you when you were unlovely. God still loves you when you are unlovely. Trust me, I can tell you that from personal experience. And it breaks me down when I really mess up and then someone reminds me that God loves me. I weep because I'm like, ow. Why? But it's true. Paul believed this because he had to walk in this truth because he messed up just like you and I. He had to trust it. He had to keep walking in it. When he doubted, he has to ask for help. He had to confess sin to God. And even with every hardship, he continued to confess that we're more than conquerors. God still loves us. And so I just want to encourage you with that this morning. So Lord Jesus, we come to you. We thank you, God, that you are love. Love